We want to welcome each one to our service here this evening. We give a special welcome to the visitors that we have with us, and we trust as we, again, look into the Word of God, we can be encouraged and strengthened in our walk with the Lord. We greet you in the name of Jesus, the one who is our suffering high priest. We look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 7 to 9. It tells us there, referring to Jesus, who it says is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It said, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. And though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. I just like to picture the setting here that the Hebrew writer is talking about. He's talking about Jesus as he went into the garden of Gethsemane. He went there with his disciples, he went there with only 11 of them because Judas had already gone out and was leading a band of soldiers back to take him captive. And Jesus enters the garden, he takes his disciples with him and he lets some of the disciples, he lets eight of them at one place and he tells Peter, James and John, he said, now come with me a little farther and he said, watch and pray. And Jesus went about a stone's cast away. And there he knelt in prayer. Suffering in agony and prayer. The cross before him. Pleading with the Father that if there's any other way that this cup would pass from him. You know, but if not, he would be willing to drink it. It says, the Hebrew writer says here, he offered up prayers with strong crying and tears as he labored there. The Bible tells us in the Gospels that Jesus sweated, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground in agony. And, and there, he, there he, you know, yielded himself to the will of the Father. And it says there, it says that he learned, though he was a son, Yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to as many as obey him. Back in 1994, uh, between 1994 and 1996, Grace and I, my wife and I, we walked through one of the deepest valleys of trial that we ever experienced. And that period of time, it just seemed like one fiery dart after another was hurled. And it seemed like life was totally out of control. I mean, we had no explanation. We grappled with the whys and the wheres and the hows and how long. And, you know, it just, it just seemed like life was almost more than we could bear. You know, we ask ourselves at times if we would ever smile again. That's the depth of the valley we were in. And I remember as one morning I woke up, I couldn't go back to sleep, and I went down and I began to pray and such searched the scriptures, and I remember coming across this verse. 
And I, these, these, this passage of scripture here in Hebrews. And I, I remember how, as I read these verses, I looked at the trial that our Lord went through. The, the crying and the tears. And it says, and, he was, and it was heard in that he feared, you know, God heard his prayer. And yet, it says, he, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. And I remember that was a distinct turning point in the valley. Suddenly, I didn't need to know anymore the wise. All I knew, that God was still there. God had a purpose for my life. And it was important that we lay all the other things aside and focus on the fact that God wanted to work a work in my life so that he could use me as we go forward. I didn't take us out of the valley immediately. But I, I would like to say this evening... You know, we need to come to a place that we are willing to go through the refining fires of God and, and able to, uh, to allow him to, to purge us of the dross and, and the things that stand in the way and uh, to again have our commitment renewed in Christ. This evening, the title of the message is Faithful in Trials. And I was encouraged this evening by the, the uh, scripture reading. As you look at the 34th Psalm, it says, you know, the Lord is not, or uh, yeah, many are, in verse 19, it, it talks, it says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivereth them, delivereth him out of them all. There's several other verses in there that talk about the test and the trials of the righteous. But you know, the Lord will deliver them all. And as I think of the message this evening, there's, you know, one of the burdens of the message this evening is the fact that we as American Christians have become very soft. We have become very soft. If you, if you study history, the, the church in America, and I should, I should, you know, the church in America from the mid-1900s on till now. When we look at the conservative Anabaptists, those that were willing to walk or endeavor to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ, there has never been a period of time where it has cost us less to be a part. You know, it's, it's unprecedented. And, and, you know, one of the things that, that we see in Western Christianity, this, this whole thing of of easy believism and, and not a lot of cost involved. You know, it's not the true picture of the church as we look across the world this evening. It's not the true picture of the church. We have begun to take an ease, self-comfort, self-entitlement from the hand of God. You know, we, we, have, we have lived in ease and comfort. We've been able to acquire the things that we need. And we begin to think that these things are, are simply entitlements from the hand of God. And uh, I think a lot of ways this has changed our perspective of testing and trials and sufferings. And you have, 
a lot more people today than ever before that you know, basically have everything they need and yet are a discontent people. You know, it seems that it has changed our perspective of what's right and wrong, what's valuable and what's, what's simply mediocre. You know, it seems in our culture today that whatever makes me feel good, you know, external things, circumstances of life, whatever it is, if it makes me feel good, that is considered normal. That is considered the normal. It, it's, it's considered that that must be good. And then on the other hand, whatever causes grief or sorrow or suffering or pain, we view as abnormal and out of control and bad. You know, that's that's kind of how we in the Western culture have learned to adapt to things. As I look at this message this evening, one of the burdens that I, that I, that I have is, is, is two things. Number one, you know, how do we deal in the affluent society we are when we come under testing and pressure? You know, how do we respond when things don't go the way we planned? When there seems to be things taking place that are out of our control, yet they're affecting us in an adverse way. How do we respond to that? You know, there's, there's a lot of people uh, turn angry towards God, turn angry towards others. And, and they, you know, it, it just, it becomes a very, very difficult situation. There's a mentality today. I, I call it the victim syndrome. You know, I'm a victim of, and you can put in there almost anything you want to put in there in our culture today. You know, brothers and sisters, this evening, God is in control. God understands and God knows. And to, to have everything at our wimp and wine is not the normal. Uh, you'll find that if you travel around the world. The other thing that I, I have as a burden and, and as I look out in, you know, we have basically in America today stood untested for our faith. Uh, if you go into other countries of the world, I don't know how many of you get the voice of the martyrs. Do any of you get that and read it? The voice of the martyrs, there's other publications that give us a real way of what's happening to our Christian brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. You know, as I think of the preparing for trials as I look at what's taking place in our nation today. I can't help but believe that the time is going to come when again there's going to be the tests of whether we're truly a follower of Jesus Christ or whether we're just going along for the ride. You know, a few years ago I was over in India. We had just finished a set of seminars there in Kadayam and there's a young man came up to me. And uh, he asked me to pray for him. He said, uh, he said he had become a Christian some time ago, and his parents, who were Hindus, uh, were, were, were looking and plotting to take his life because he had become a follower of Jesus Christ. And he, he asked me to pray with him there, pray for him. And then after that, he, he began to talk about what he's doing. He said he's... He's involved in street evangelism. He go, evangelism. He goes out and preaches and passes out tracts on the street. And he talked about some of the things that took place or take place and the, 
the extreme resistance that he finds from, from you know, some of the people that he's endeavoring to minister to. And while he was talking, I asked him a question. I said, have you ever been hit or beaten for preaching on the street? And I guess I wasn't so shocked at his answer, but the look in his face told me more than his answer. He looked at me and he said, well, sure. It was just like his expression to me is, where have you been? Where have you been? This is a reality of life. This is a reality of the cross. You know, later, it was, I think, just the last time I was over in 2014, I was riding with a brother, and I was commenting that of the change that I saw in India, uh, the economic change that I've seen since the first time I was there in 2002. Now, back then, when I went in 2002, there was very little private ownership of automobiles in the middle class, almost zero in the middle class. If someone drove a car, he was in more of the upper class. But in the last years, you, know, you definitely have seen a change. This young man, this brother looked at me, he said, yeah, he said, in India, he said, we have a rapidly growing economy. He said, according to statistics and, the, and the, the growth rate at present, he said, by 2025, he said, we will be the world's fastest growing economy. And then he stopped and he looked at me, but he said, I expect till then we will be paying for our faith with blood. Brothers and sisters, if that becomes our lot, what is our response going to be? You know, where will we stand? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which shall try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his, when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. The question tonight is, where do we place the value on our faith? What is your, what is your relationship with Jesus Christ worth to us this evening? What would we be willing to trade for that? What would we give in exchange for that? I think that's one of the questions that we have to consider. And so I'd like to look at 1 Peter. I'd like to read the first 12 verses and then look at this and see what we can glean from it. But in 1 uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered through Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, 
who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season. If need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried by fire, might be found under the praise and the honor and the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it, it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which now are reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. This evening, you know, as we look at the book of 1 Peter, one of the things that Peter brings up again and again in this book is the fact that we are to, we are to arm ourselves or we are to prepare our minds for the fact that the Christian life is not going to be a playground, but it's going to be a battlefield. We need to prepare ourselves for the trials and the tests that are going to come. We have there where it talks about the trying of our faith in verses 6 and 7. If we go over to chapter 2 and look at verses 19 to 24, it says there, For this is thankworthy if a man... For conscience sake toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving an example that ye should follow in his steps. And then we go on to chapter 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 to, uh, 12 to 18. It says, uh, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, Happy are ye, but if ye be a, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of the reason of hope which lieth in you, with lieth in you with meekness and fear. Uh, then, uh, yeah, verse sixteen says, having a good conscience, that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers that they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing, 
than for evil doing, for Christ also once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit. Jumping over to chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Going on down to verse 12 of chapter 4. Again, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his when his glory shall be revealed, that ye may be glad also. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you, and on their part he is evil spoken of, but in your part he is glorified. Let none suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or an evildoer, or a busybody in other man's matters. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. And, you know, we see here that Peter talks about the fact that suffering and trials are going to be a part of the Christian life. As I look back into 1 Peter chapter 1, what I see here is it talks about the salvation that God has brought. And, and it also speaks of the value of that salvation. And so one of the questions this evening is, where do we value our salvation? You know, what is it worth to us? And so as I look at the, the three things, or I have three points I want to consider here from 1 Peter chapter 1. The first point is values. The second point is valor. And the third one is vision. You know, we're gonna, if we're going to be victorious in the tests of life, it's going to be imperative that our values are placed properly. You know, this evening, what value do you place on your salvation and your relationship with God? You know, we will look here in a minute as we look at these verses and we look what God did and what the value of that is. You know, what does salvation mean to us here this evening? If it's something that is precious, if it is something that we see of great price, you know, it isn't going to be hard to give ourselves in suffering, if need be, if that be the will of God. But if it's something that, is in, that there's a sense of indifference towards, you know, we're, we're probably going to throw it aside and take an easier road. Uh, this evening, as we think of our salvation, Jesus, in his kingdom parables in Matthew chapter 13, he gives two illustrations. He gives the illustration of a man that was a treasure hunter. And it tells us there that that treasure hunter, he was, he was rummaging around, he was looking for treasures, and he came to a field and he found a treasure. And he found that the value of that treasure was so great that he went back and he sold everything he had. He got rid of everything he had, he liquidated it, he went out and he bought that field because of the value of the treasure that was in the field. He said, that's, that's the kingdom of heaven. is like unto a man that found a treasure hidden in the field. The second parable he gives there in Matthew 13, 45 to 46, 
He said it's, a, it's like a, a man that, that was, was trading treasures. He's a man that was hunting jewels. And when he came to a place, he found one pearl. One pearl that a, was of great value. And that, per, that, that trader, that, that jeweler, he took everything he had. He, he had liquidation sale. He got rid of all the precious stones, the treasures, the silver, the gold that he had stored there. And he went and he bought that one pearl of great price. And I'd like to say this evening, I believe that is the value that you and I need to put on the kingdom of God this evening. I believe if our values are less than that, we're going to be tempted. When the day comes and the trial and our faith is tested, we're likely going to lay it aside to take the easy road. As we look at this salvation that God brought to us, it tells us here in verse 2, he says, We have been elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, as we, we stop and think about the offer that God made to us in salvation. You know, we didn't deserve salvation. And when we, when we consider the condition of mankind before salvation, and I, I'm not sure, I was a young man that in a lot of my youth years, I lived pretty loosely. And yes, I felt the pangs and the sorrows of sin. You know, that's a miserable place to live. It's a miserable place to live. And you know, when I come to grips with salvation, you know, that, that burden of sin was lifted. And I was set free. What a tremendous blessing. But as I look at 1 Peter here, it talks about being elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And I'm not sure I can fully explain that there, but that elect has the idea of being chosen, but it says we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Now before you get an idea, I'm going to go off in some left wing with that. Uh, we find nowhere in the scripture that God chose for humanity to be lost. That is a result of a person's individual choice. But it says that God chose us according to his foreknowledge. As I looked at that word foreknowledge, that comes from the Greek word prognosis. Now, do we know in the English language what a prognosis is? You, you, you go into the doctor's office and he examines you and he evaluates your condition, and by the, the, the insight that he has on medicine, and what's going to happen when that begins to be treated, 
they can give you some kind of a prognosis, an expectancy of what is going to take place or what you are looking at. And I believe God looks into our lives before we're even born. You know, the Bible tells us that God knew us. Before he created us in the womb, he knew us. He told Jeremiah that before I formed thee in the belly, I have chosen thee and ordained thee, that I'm not sure exactly how it says, as much as he should be a prophet unto the nations. God knew Jeremiah. And I believe God knew each one of us here this evening. And because of that knowledge, he could take us and he could place us as having nothing to do with choices of our own. And he could place us in, 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 in homes and in places of opportunity where we could hear the gospel. You know, I, I'm not sure if I'm taking that too far or not. But I, I believe God knew, and, and I have to reckon with the fact that I didn't have a choice. And, and the more I work uh, with people and look into situations and circumstances, especially as I look at the, the lives of little children that are caught into situations and they're bearing the pain of the sins of their parents, we have people that live in places where they never hear the gospel, or they never know the tender love of a mother. They never know the instruction of a godly father that has a desire for his child to grow in wisdom and in the knowledge of the Lord. They don't know that. But I know one thing this evening I did. I had that opportunity. I didn't choose that. But God did. And God has, if, if you're sitting here under the sound of my voice this evening, and you're looking into the, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are a blessed people. You have the opportunity to hear, to know, and to respond to the message of the gospel. Many in the world today don't have that. But as God, and I don't know, brothers and sisters, but when we consider that fact, that should be a humbling experience. It should make us consider the tremendous love that God has invested into our lives. And we, we through that, e even, you know, we have the opportunity to come to Jesus. We have the opportunity to have our sins washed away in the blood of the Lamb. What a tremendous privilege this evening. What greater value, what greater treasure could we have? He says that we were elect according to the foreknowledge of God through the sanctification of the Spirit. You know, because we had the opportunity to hear the Word of God, the Spirit of God could speak to our hearts. And I, I realize this evening that before conversion, the Holy Spirit speaks from the outside through the conscience, convince, convincing and convicting men of sin. However... It's that convicting, that, 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 that reproving of sin in our lives. It comes by the Holy Spirit that brings conviction and brings us to repentance. And it says through that, we come in obedience 
under the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's there that we can know the forgiveness of sins. Know that our sins are washed away. The Bible tells us that God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. He pardons our transgressions. What a tremendous deliverance. What a tremendous freedom this evening. But you know, the work of salvation is progressive. You know, we come to salvation, we're justified of the sins past. But then God begins to work a work in our lives and he begins to transform us into the image of his dear son. And I believe that's a work of a lifetime. I don't think, you know, it talks about being perfect. It talks about, you know, that we're, 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 we're to be perfect in Christ. But, you know, I believe that perfecting work is something that goes on. And as I think of the word perfect or being perfected, you know, I think of a person that, that tends an orchard. When a man goes out, a man that tends an orchard goes out in the spring and he sees that tree starting to push forth buds at the right time of the year. He doesn't cut it down and destroy the tree. He looks at the buds and he said, that's a perfect tree. But a little later, it goes into blossom. Again, as that, that tree is progressing, the, the orchard tender doesn't cut that tree down because it only has blossoms in April. You know, he, he nourishes that tree. He tends that tree. And after a while, you have the fruit developing on the tree. And, and, and that's good. That's, that's perfect. And I think it's a little like that in our lives. You know, God, God wants to, to have us continuing growing, producing fruit to perfection for him. And so what a tremendous blessing this evening. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercies has begotten us again unto a lively hope, from the, lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now here we move to the third thing into salvation where there is the, the lively hope. And when the Bible talks about a lively hope, it's not talking about the sense of the word that we use hope today. We can use the term hope today as a very fickle desire of the heart. Oh, I hope it don't rain tomorrow. Or I hope, you know, whatever you can put in there. I hope it don't rain in the first day of deer season. Or whatever you want to put in. You know, those are fickle desires of the heart. But when the Bible talks about a lively hope, or when the Bible talks about the hope of the Christian, it's speaking about a confident expectation that is built on the promise of God that has not yet been fulfilled. And we have, as, we, as we've been justified by the blood of Jesus, as we're being sanctified by the, the, the working of his spirit in our lives as we yield ourselves to him, growing in perfection... We're able to live with this confident expectation that Jesus is coming back. And at that point in time, we have the promise of eternal inheritance. 
He tells us here that he has given us a, a, a lie, he's, he's given us a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is incorruptible, undefiled, that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. And I, I look at this, this whole thing of inheritance. It says that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it's not going to fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Now I see that quite a bit better than earthly inheritances. You know, earthly inheritances often have given way to squabbles within a family. You know, it's, it's sad, but that's, that's a reality. Lawyers get rich off of squabbling inheritances. I mean, it's, uh, it's sad, but, but then even when the inheritance is finally divided out, you get past the family feuds, the inheritance is, 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 is divvied out and everyone gets their share. You know, if, if, if the person is not a, a wise person, that inheritance can very quickly vanish. You know, it, it, it can be squandered, it can, it, it can go away. But our heavenly inheritance is something that is of eternal value. It's incorruptible. It won't, it won't get old, it won't decay, it won't rust, it won't rot, it won't burn. You know, that inheritance is sure. And God gives us pictures of that uh, as we go back into Revelation. It gives, and I may turn to that it, it, and just look at a, a few things there this evening. But it's, it's reserved in heaven for you. Nobody's going to steal it. Nobody's going to take it. The will is written. Our Savior has died. He's given his life. The inheritance is there. We're here waiting with our ticket, ready to get on the train to go receive the inheritance. As I, as I look at our Christian lives this evening, that's really where we should be. We should have the ticket purchased. We should be expecting the train to come in. And we're, we're, we're able to go and to receive that inheritance when the right time comes. God has that in his hands. But brothers and sisters this evening, what value do we put on that? Do we recognize this evening that this world is not our home? This world is not our home. It's just a temporary uh, place where we are. Uh, you know, it's only in heaven that we're going to experience the, 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 the place where there's no suffering, there's no pain, uh, there's nothing that is going to defile, there's nothing that's going to detract. And as I thought about that, going back into Revelation 21, uh, verses... Uh, Verse, uh, verse 4, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death. There shall neither be sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are all passed away. You know, really, as I thought about that, that's kind of the utopia of the American dream. That's kind of what we want to try and create here. And, and, and you know, there's, there, there, there's, there's sort of this, this, this subtle mentality in the minds of people that somehow we can, we can claim that here. And yet, we know that 
while we're on earth, there's going to be tears. There's going to be disappointments. There's going to be sorrows. There's going to be grief. There's going to be pain. And yet today, you know, America pretty much uh, advertises or declares that somehow we can make that utopia a reality here. But you know, as we think of the values, God has, those are things, those are realities that God has for us to experience. If we continue faithful and we, we, we pursue that internal inheritance, uh, to, uh, we, if we faithfully pursue the heavenly inheritance. And that brings us to the second point, and that is of valor. We look at valor, it's, it's not a, a, a word that's commonly used in, in the everyday English language, but if you go back into the Old Testament, it talks about soldiers being mighty men of valor. Are they fought valiantly? You know, are they, they were valiant men. Uh, it has the idea that they were a stalwart soldier. They were, they were ready to engage in the battle. They were going to fight to win because of the cause that was at stake. And I, I believe that that, that kind of paints the picture here. You know, if we go back into 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. You know, and that word lay hold on has the idea of grasping as a, as a drowning man would grasp a rope. And hold on, he says, lay hold on eternal life because of the value that it has. In uh, 2 Timothy, Paul again admonishes Timothy. He says, therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. He says here that wherein we greatly rejoice. You know, our salvation is something that we can rejoice in. But he says, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations. You know, this evening, it, I, I like what it says there, if need be. You know, God is the one. You know, as we think of the, 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 the temptations and the tests, those will not come to all men equally. They won't, because God has promised that you know, he's not going to allow anybody to be tempted or tested beyond the limit which they can bear. You know, God is, God is faithful. He's, uh, you know, God is sovereign. He is in control. And yet we know that God does allow circumstances into our life that bring testing. They bring trial. Uh, you know, they're going to test where our values really are. And uh, there again I say that those don't come equally to everyone. But you know, it says, if need be, you know, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptation or, or trials or tests, whatever way that comes. And we know that various times through history that test comes at the expense of life itself. And as I said before, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised that in, in America it will again be the experience of the true children of God. But this evening he says that when we go through that, 
He says that we're the trial of our faith, uh, being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, it might be found unto the praise and the honor and the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now we think of testing, you know, I, my mind goes back to the book of Job. Now Job was severely tested. Now it's interesting we find there that Job was a righteous man. The Bible tells us that he was a righteous man. And, and somewhere in the realms of the spirit world, in the realms of heaven, Satan was, was trying to get to Job to destroy him. That was the intent of Satan. And yet God knew what Job was able to bear. He first limited his powers and he, he limited him again and again. And he did put a limit on him right down to the end that he could not touch Job's life. But Job didn't know what was going on. And, and yet those circumstances affected him severely. And we find that it's interesting as Job goes through that. And you can find Job grappling with the wise and the trying to understand and to make sense of what is taking place. But when we come to the book of uh, the last chapter of Job in Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, you know, uh, he, he had a new vision and a new perspective of God. And Job came through uh, more refined uh, and more righteous than he was before. And the blessing of God was upon him. You know, I believe tonight there's still, there's still that, you know, I, when we enter into testing and trials, it's Satan's desire that we fail, that we give up, that we turn back. You know, that's Satan's purposes. But God has a limit on that, and it's God's intent that as we go through them things, it's going to have a refining effect on our lives that we come through pure and more ready to serve the Lord than we were before. This evening, you know, we will come through victoriously if our values are in the things of the kingdom. But if our values are simply centered, you know, if Job's farms, his land, his cattle, his servants would have been the, the, the most precious thing to him, he would have likely cursed God and died. But you know, he had a value on a relationship with a living God and whatever, however that, I know in the Old Testament, their ability to relate with God was different than it is today. But I believe Job had a faith in God that all that could not shake because of his knowledge of God. This evening, you know, I guess the question is, what is the good fight of faith, or what, what, is the, what is the faith worth? Is it worth uh, going through trial and tribulation and suffering in order to obtain the blessing that God has for us? The last point this evening is vision. The vision is, is a vision of that which is going to be ours to inherit it, to inherit at the end of life. Verse 9 says, after we have... Uh, after we've gone through the, the trial, the testing uh, is going to bring victory. And, and in verse 9 it says, Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Uh, he's saying there that in the end, as we continue faithful, 
we're going to experience the final act of redemption, the final act of salvation when we can enter in to the glories and the joys of the Lord. What a tremendous blessing. As we think of the value of this salvation, I like the way Peter puts it here in verses 10, to, uh, uh, 10 through 12. But he talks about a salvation that the prophets have inquired and searched diligently and prophesied that, that, that this, this grace, this great salvation would come. You know, all the Old Testament prophets, as they spoke of the laws and the ordinances of God, and they, they taught them and they upheld them, they realized, at least some of them realized in part, that the things that they were doing were not an end in themselves, but they spoke to a salvation uh, to, to a redemption that God was going to bring to fulfillment sometime in the future. They were not going to immediately be a part of that. But, you know, they, they saw it by faith and they prophesied. They continued on in faithfulness of life. You know, I was talking of the prophets of the Old Testament. And, it, it, you know, I think it was something that somewhat puzzled them. But yet they continued in faith. And it seemed like you know, it was revealed to them what would, in some way, what would come. But they, you know, they, they, they continued on in faith uh, for our blessing. It says, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven. And then we have there, it says that this salvation is something that the angels desire to look into. And I don't fully understand this evening what that is. But I believe there was a time when the, all the angels were part of the angelic realm in the realms of heaven. But there came a day when there was an uprising and Satan rebelled against God. And the scriptures would tell us that Satan was cast out. And we, I think it's in Revelation, it talks about a third of the stars of heaven being taken with him, or a third of the angelic beings. And I, you know, I believe there them, them angels that were there in heaven. I believe there was a sense of loss. I believe there, there, there had to be some sense of grief that, that these angels were cast out forever with a sentence of damnation upon them. But we as humanity, we as humanity have willfully sinned. You know, God placed Adam and Eve in the garden. And they chose to turn against God, as did the human race ever since that. But God has offered to humanity a salvation that he has not offered unto angels. Tonight... What value do we put on that salvation? God wants us to hold that precious. This evening, in closing, are our hearts set on eternity here tonight? You know, I know we live in a society that It's a little bit like I went visiting at an old people's home, one of the retirement communities in our, in our community there. 
in fairly new, lavish and extravagant. And I, I don't know what, I was talking with someone else. He looked around and he said, you know, he said, I think I see everything here that would make you not want to go to heaven. You know, I see circumstances here that are so comfortable, they're so lavish, that it makes you comfortable just to stay here. And I have to admit, our American lifestyle, I believe, has a tendency to do that far more than a lot of the parts of the world that I visited already. But brothers and sisters, we need to set our focus on eternity. These things that we hold and enjoy are only temporal. They could be taken tonight. And I ask this evening, if them things were taken tonight, where would your faith be? Would you have a faith in Jesus Christ that would carry you through? Or would you be resolved, or would you go down in anger and bitterness, saying, God, it isn't fair. It isn't fair. I ask this evening, are our hearts set on eternity? Do you know the assurance of salvation? Do you, do you have a vision? Have you made the provision? Have you bought the ticket? Waiting for the time when God's train comes for us, that we're ready to go. Shall we bow our heads for prayer? Our Father in heaven this evening, again we thank you for your tender mercies upon us. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of your word that points us to the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your word which points us to the eternal things that lie above that you are waiting for those that believe and have consecrated their lives to you. Father, again this evening, may we be prepared to meet you. Lord, again, may we have a vision of eternity in our hearts. May we not be bogged down with the things of life, the things of earth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This evening, I think we're going to sing another two verses of invitation hymn. Um, you know, again, I ask, what are your values, or values of life? You know, have you been born again? Do you know the Savior this evening? You know, is he dear to you? Is he precious to you? Do the things of eternal value hold your heart? Or is there a bondage to earth things? I plead with you this evening that if you do if you're not ready to meet the Lord and the, the things of earth are gripping you and choking you, I, I ask you to come tonight as we sing an invitation song and someone will pray with you and, and as you yield yourself to the Lord, uh, God will bring the joy of salvation into your life. What shall we sing this evening? <laughs>